Welcome everyone back to the Main Main Podcast. On this episode, I'm super excited to have our local VC expert, Jonathan Chang on. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me out here. I'm super, super excited to be here today and I'm really excited to talk venture and everything else. Yeah. So why don't we just start this out and you can give the audience a quick introduction about like kind of who you are, your background, and I, I guess like, yeah, talk about how you got to VC. Yeah, I guess my name is Jonathan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Chang J. You can follow me on TikTok at Venture Capital Guy. My full-time job right now is I'm at Brex as a venture in residence. My job is how do I meet as many early stage founders as I can and figure out how to best integrate them into the startup ecosystem, get founders connected with other founders, VCs connected with other VCs, and founders connected with VCs. Based in San Francisco, loving it out here in the heart of Hayes Valley, or as now AI founders call it, Cerebral Valley. It's definitely been interesting. Uh, before Brex, I was working at an edtech venture fund called GSV, uh, investing early stage to later stage edtech um, before GSV was at another venture fund called Graham Ventures, investing in psychedelic therapeutics, electric cars, and fintech. But yeah, I guess right now, outside of Brex, I do two main things. One is I'm the founder of something called Gen Z Scouts, which is a program designed to help students, especially from non-target universities, figure out ways to help help them break in to the local startup and venture capital ecosystem, as well as I run my own syndicate called Daydream Ventures, where we invest 50 to 150K in early stage founders. So yeah, it's good to be here. Awesome, awesome. By the way, you don't have to like be that close um, if if you don't want to. Like you can you can still look up and look up <laughs> on the screen and stuff. So it's not looking like you're just staring at something down there. Um, well, let's get right into it. How does one break into VC? Let's talk about that. It's, it's a good question. I think <laughs> I think it's really interesting because everyone I've talked to about how did you break into VC has the most craziest stories I've ever seen. Mine was interesting. Mine was, I broke into VC, so I guess my story was this. I was working as a data scientist by senior year of college at UCLA. Loved it. It was an early stage startup. They just actually raised their Series B last year. But during the time, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be a data scientist. Nothing VC related, but in the startup ecosystem. When... I was graduating June 2020, so it was like the heart of COVID. Um, March 2020 comes around, COVID comes around, and my startup is like, hey, you know, we don't have funds to hire you anymore. Um, You should find something else to do. So I'm like, oh, shit, I got three months left to kind of figure this out. What am I going to do? I literally applied to almost every single job out there. At the time, I was focusing on not only venture, but was focusing on things like film. I was a film writer at UCLA, worked at Lionsgate, NBC Universal. I was um, applying to like ops roles and everything else. Nothing hit. Literally put out like three hundred interview, like three hundred resumes. Probably got like a few interviews because every company is like, oh, you know, due to uncertain times, we're pausing hiring. And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> it's rough. Due um, to I unforeseeable really... futures, we're pausing our hiring. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's rough. And I was like, okay, well, shit, you know, I got to figure something out before my parents freak out and is like, why don't you have a job? Um, I got, I started working at this fund I told you about called Good Am Ventures. And I wasn't getting paid. I actually literally got paid in weed because our general partner, 
he was a cannabis investor. And he was like, well, we don't have funds to pay you, but here's like $300 a week. It's actually sitting on my parents' kitchen table right now. Haven't touched it. But um, no way. what happened after was um, I, during the time, I interviewed at this place called GSV, where I eventually worked at. And this was, you know, March 2020 when they had the uncertain times interviewed with them they came back impressed i guess and was like hey we can't hire but you know we'll keep you out we'll keep you on a lookout for something else i had connected with another partner at gsv based in the bay area a few months later during the summer of like it was like june july 2020 and at that time i was doing a lot of video editing work as well on the side and they're like hey we actually are running this virtual program called the gsv Bootcamp," and we want, we need someone to help edit it, you know, create videos of it and really just curate some content. And I'm like, you know, I'm happy to do that on this side while I'm still working at this other fund. And they're like, yeah, love to do, love to have you do that. So I was doing that. I was literally like being a video editor for them until September comes around and they're like, Hey, there's an open associate position open up if you're interested. And I was like, dude, I'm really, really down. Didn't even really interview. They were like, all right, here's the contract. You start, I'm like, all right, take a two-week vacation. And they're like, all right, you start, you know, in October. So that's kind of how I ended up in venture, through literally, like, helping a venture fund do video editing. Um, Of course, everyone has their own stories. You know, there's a good friend of mine, Paige Dougherty. She runs a fund called Behind Genius Ventures. She's my age, but raised, like, a $5 million fund one. Super impressive. She started off as, like, a music manager. Um, but at the end of the day, anyone in any major you want could break into VC. I have friends who broke into VC as finance, engineering, and the craziest ones is like anthropology, mm-hmm. um, psychology, education. So really, any field is well, you know, you're well versed into being able to break into venture. Mm, interesting, interesting. I think that's such a unique story because usually like people go out of their way to try to get into VC. Like they have their entire career roadmap being like, I'm going to do investment banking, that I'm going to do private equity, that I'm going to do like growth equity. And then that can sell my store to get into VC while you're just like, yeah, I, 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 I like, did some weed stuff. I got paid in weed and I did some video editing yeah. <laughs> up here today. That kind of reminds me of like, you know how like there's like that joke where there's like that, that, like the senior managing directors at every single like big company is like, yeah, you know, after college, I went to Colorado, like I, I snowboarded there for five years, then I went to Argentina for another five years, and then boom, one day I'm just here working at JP Morgan. <laughs> right? Well, well, today it's exactly. like, in order to get in, it's like, dude, I've been wanting to break into investment banking since I was five years old. Like this, this has been my destiny. This has been like the life that I want to pursue. But oh, that, that's cool. That's actually really cool. I didn't know that. Um, did, did you think your degree in statistics helped you out in oh, breaking to VC? Kind of, not really. I have, to this day, I have never used anything statistics related in venture. And I think you brought up a really good point. It was like back in the day or what I was taught was you go into investment banking, you go into PE, and you go into venture. And I will say now, looking back, I think it's not a really great path to go down. It's like, unless you want to do late stage venture, early stage venture, everything you do in consulting, everything you do in PE, everything you do in IB, actually don't correlate to anything you learn in early stage investing. Because 
early stage investing, you're not going to have many numbers to go off of. You can't decide, oh, this company's valued at this because of, you know, XYZ revenue numbers, because at the end of the day, they might not have revenue or they just have very little revenue. It's how do you understand product? How do you understand product market fit? As well as how do you understand, it's more of human behavior. How do you understand human behavior in, you're talking to two companies, exact same product, same revenue, same numbers. Mm -hmm. How do you tell them apart? It's judging by a founder persona. It's like, is this founder going to, you know, do well? Or it's like, do they have what it takes to not only, you know, grow, but also weather storms that are like, hey, we don't know where funding's coming from next week, you know? How do we increase morale and drive vision and sell to not only their customers, but also sell to their team on why this is a great company to be at? I guess like peeking back of that, off of that topic, what makes a good startup company, right? Good founder team is one of them. Like what, what else have you seen generally to success within like a startup? It's a it's a great question, and I think it's something VCs are also trying to figure out because you know at the end of the day, if you look, <laughs> it's like what ninety five percent of VC portfolio companies in a venture fund fail. So it's like, hey, if you can get fifty percent, you're probably the best venture investor out there in the world in history. What I kind of look for, or what I looked for when I was at GSV, was something called the five P's. Um, these were like five principles we had when we were evaluating early stage founders. One was, of course, people. You want to have great founders with great company founder fit. It's like the founder should be building in an industry that they're interested in building in, or they should be building an industry where they've had experience in. Because it's like, okay, yeah, you see all this Web3, you see all this AI hype come into the market, right? You see all these founders getting into AI because, oh, it's the next hot thing to do. There's not much product market fit. Once you see Web3 die out, you saw all these companies also pivoted to AI. So it's like you have to find founders who are passionate enough to do this because it's a seven-year journey. You're not going to have the best of times throughout these seven years. You're going to have times where you're like, shit, I'm running low on funding. What do I do to sustain my company? The worst founders will be like, we're shutting down the best founders will find a way to weather the storm if they fail and su- if they succeed or if they fail, at least they tried. Um, two is like, oh, finding great product, you know, great products. Of course, product is one thing, but you have to figure out that at the end of the day for, it's like I talked to YC companies last week, about 50% of the current YC batch is pivoting, mm-hmm. which is crazy because, well, it makes sense. Early stage companies, realize, oh, I got a new hypothesis on XYZ idea that's kind of tangential to what I'm building right now. I think I should build this. So products are great. You should find products with decent product market fit. Like, you know, they found a problem that's kind of worth solving and it's probably going to change over time and that's going to be great. But as long as it has, it has a stickiness and as long as it has, you know, founders, you know, as long as it has users who are like, hey, if this product went away, I would be pretty sad it's probably chances are you're stumbling across a pretty great product. Those are kind of the two big things I look at. Of course, there's like potential, like how big is the market? Um, Predictability. It's like how easy is this product to scale everywhere? It's basically, is this product predictable enough 
where it's easily able to grow to not only, you know, these early adopters, but to, you know, your mainstream people who, people who've never heard of this product ever in their lives. And three, it's also the last one we went over is like purpose. How does this product better the world today? Um, today? Mm-hmm. That was kind of like what GSV's five P's, what their investment thesis was. It's kind of kind of how I look at startups now post GSV as well, because at the end of the day, they are pretty five good, really good thesis points in terms of finding great founders, evaluating them, especially when you have little data to do so. I want to I wanna dive a little deeper into one of the P's you said there, the problem one. Yeah. How important is to build a company that solves a problem? Can you build companies that don't solve problems? Like, for example, I'm not, I could be wrong, but I don't think Facebook necessarily solves a problem. It's like, oh, it's nice to have, right? Like, what's your take on like nice to have companies versus need to have companies? Because solving a problem means it's need to have, but maybe Facebook solves like a desire, right? Desire, desire for yeah. connection, having friends around. Yeah. Is that enough? Or does it need to I like argue- solve a very specific pain point in a customer's life? I'd argue Facebook is solving a problem and it's a problem that we might not have realized before because we didn't know it existed. But now it's like you take away Facebook what does that mean? You take away for a lot of our older generation, you take away their ability to communicate with their friends, family, share things as well, which is a pretty big problem. At the end of the day, what Facebook was building was human connectivity, which during the early eras of the internet was very little. It's like you had your chat rooms on AOL, you know, and all that stuff. But it was hard to be, it was like the first platform where you connected with, for me, it was like, you connected with members of your family. You could share, you could message. And I think that is 100% a problem worth solving. Of course, it's like this. If you want to be like a big company, like a unicorn or at least a few hundred million dollars worth, you definitely need to find a problem to solve. And I think Facebook did. There are companies that I've seen that there's no problem to be solved. They made some money here and there. I don't know if you heard this heard about this company or it's just an app called it's called something like i'm hella rich i don't know if you've ever no tell me about it but it was some i think it eventually got removed from the app store and the name might be wrong but it was this app where it charged users 99.99 to download the app and it was this big red button on your iphone and you press it and it'd be like i'm rich or something like that there's no problem but it sold well because people were like oh this is funny this is like the beginning of the app store it's like a novelty it wasn't solving any problem and of course now it's gone Mm. but it makes money um not as much as like venture backable companies but it did make some money it's it's like a trend right it's kind of like tiktok trends in a way where it's like it's very short-lived it'll get very hype very quickly and it it dies out like immediately as well there's no longevity to it at all Exactly. Yeah. What's your take on the whole entire like AI revolution? Because, uh, yeah. and I guess to add on to that, what's your take on like the downfall of Web three and the career economy hype, right? Because everyone's everyone's <laughs> talking about. I, I think like the most hot topic, you know, industry right now, the VC industry is AI. So, kind of like broad question. What's your take on it? It's it's a that's a great question to ask. 
I joined venture during the height of the career economy. I had VCs come up to me and be like, hey, this is the next big industry. You look at it now and it's like um, every quarter startups in the creator economy space, um, they get funded less and less. And same with Web3. I actually just had a call right before this with a Web3 company and I was like, shit, you're the first Web3 company I've talked to in like three weeks because everyone else is dead. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, creator economy, Web3 are here to stay. I think there's a lot of use. And I think this kind of downfall, as they say, it's overall great for the industries because it's kind of like a uh, having the industry mature in a bit where every X amount of time, I guess now is like every year, there's a new hot industry that comes in and everyone wants to build you are eventually going to separate your, you know, people who are actually building versus people who are chasing hype. And at the end of the day, with what the creator economy did with the downfall, the downfall of the Web3 industry as well, you see or you don't see because they're all very quietly building is there's going to be generational Web3 companies and generational creator economy companies being built out today that is separated from all this noise before of, oh my God, Web3, this, Web3, that. And I think it's going to be good for the industry. I think AI is going to, it's feeling like the same thing mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you see companies out there and you see companies that are building very similar products or building these companies who are just chat GPT wrappers where they're wrapped on chat GTP. They have absolutely no moat. And if I knew how to code, it's like I could code the same shit you did in a day or two. There's no defensibility. If your defensibility is I'm great at TikTok or, you know, I'm great at marketing this product, you're going to fail in the long run because it can only get you so far. Um, a lot of these old, like you look at your older incumbents, your Jasper AIs, your copy AIs, these types of companies who've been building uh, generative AI for a while, they all have moats. Like, they're not building on top of ChatGTP anymore. They're building their own LLMs, which is their whole differentiator. For a lot of these new companies, it's hard. But at the end of the day, it's like I was talking to <coughs> – I'm also sick right now. So I'm You're, good. You're good. You're <coughs> good. I'm going to add another name in there, guys. Also, Jenny AI is also building their own moat. Just, uh, just want to quickly plug that. <laughs> I'll be back in like a 20 seconds. No worries. Take your time. All right. And we're back. And yeah, so Mark Andreessen from A16Z wrote this really great article about, I feel like a decade ago, called Software Eats the World. Let's talk about how yeah. software is going to you know, change the world as we know. I kind of, you know, I've been thinking about something, me and my friend came up with it, is like AI eats the world. How is AI going to change the world as we know? Because at the end of the day, okay, Web3 was interesting. Creator economy was interesting, but it doesn't affect everyday people's lives. Um, Web3 affected some people. Creator economy affects really just the creators and their fans. What AI has the ability to do is transform every single facet of our daily lives from restaurants, automation, travel, anything else. And it's already integrated in a lot of companies that we don't know because we're so used to it. We don't even think it's AI related that in my opinion yeah i think web i think ai is here to stay 
I think there is some hype to it, but I think a lot of it is also warranted. It's like, there's going to be growing pains, of course, where there's so many people. I just got added to this AI chat yesterday. Half of the people on there are building AI just to build AI and like companies that I'm like, I don't think I would invest in you, but you know, good luck. But the other half are building, actually going to be gener- transforming companies that it's going to impact life for the next decade. Yeah, I, I, I think like, I kind of want to go back to what we said earlier about like founders building companies, not because they want to build a company. They don't have a purpose in it. They don't really care about what they're building. They're just building because it's the next big thing and there's a market for it right now, which is completely valid if you ask me. Like, I, I think you should go after a growing market. You should go after something that is um, that people are having a lot of like hype around there's just a lot of investment going to because that can lead to like faster growth overall but i also do agree with just with point of like you know from my own personal experiences if you build something that you don't even care about that you don't want to you know it sounds cheesy to say right but it's like you don't enjoy the process of building every single day yeah. it's not gonna have any longevity like you maybe burn out in like six months to a year and just be like i don't want to touch this anymore i don't want to think about this because like i don't even care about it in the first place right yeah. it's hard it's hard i think that's the hardest part about being a founder sometimes which is like finding the balance between what you want to also creators too oh we can go into creator stuff like finding a balance between what you want to make versus what the market wants yeah yeah so what are let's go back to let's go back to VC a little bit, just like overall. What are what are like the different types of venture capital firms there? Like the different forms. Can you talk a little about yeah. that? I think yeah. So there's a few types of venture cap you know, uh, capital stages, firms and kind of where they operate. I think the first one I'll talk about is probably one of the more newer ones. It's venture studios. These are kind of like idea stage. There's venture studios out there that operate with the premise of we help find your co-founder or hell, we incubate like an idea. So I think a really good one is there was this fund I came across called Fractional, uh, Fractal, Fractal Ventures. They're kind of a venture studio venture fund model, but on their venture studio side, they have analysts basically every week come up with like 10, 20 different ideas, Um, could be more. Um, and be like, hey, these could be interesting companies. And then they go, they're like, oh, we like this idea or we like XYZ idea. And then they go find a great CEO, a great team to lead that idea, give them additional funding and have them go around. That's venture studio model. Super hands-on early stage. They get a little bit more equity. You move forward, you have accelerators. Your Y Combinators, your tech stars of the groups, your Mucker Labs of the groups, these are companies that already have a team, but try to find product market fit. Mm-hmm. They're still really early. They might not even have revenue. Might only raise you know less than 100K, and their job is how do we find product market fit and how do we grow? Accelerators are meant to, A, increase your connections in the space, and that's what YC is good at because... At the end of the day, it's like what YC will invest, I think it was like 140K, I could be wrong, and get you they get 7% of your company. If that's, you know, if you look at it from the outside, you know, that's a terrible valuation to begin with. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you're not taking YC because of their money. You're taking YC because of the network it gives you, which is, you know, some of the best founders of the world. 
Um, yeah. Which is why every accelerator is different. There's accelerators that I tell founders, you should not go to this accelerator because it won't teach you anything. You end up wasting equity. Or there's accelerators. This is like a red flag. If an accelerator makes you pay for the accelerator, that's a red flag. Don't uh. do it. Um, I won't name names, but there's one I interviewed at when I was in college. They tried to make me do like a four-hour interview, and I was like, no, I'm not doing oh, this. interesting. Okay, okay. Um, and then you go forward. You have your pre-seed funds. You have your seed funds, and then you have your like Series A funds. You know, can, those are can kind you of talk a little about that. what that means? Yeah. So pre-seed funds kind of come in either after Accelerator or before an Accelerator. They will invest anywhere from 100K to up to like a million plus at the earliest valuation. So probably 5 to 12 million during the peak. Seed funds are kind of similar to pre-seed fund, except when pre-seed funds, they look at companies, they more look at founder fit. Pre-seed funds kind of looks a little more at traction. When you're pre-seed, you might not need any users. You know, you might just have an MVP and that's it. But seed funds, it's like, all right, what's your MVP looking like? What's your traction looking like? Are you making revenue? That's, yeah. you know, where it's a little bit serious. It's like, prove to me why, you know, it's like, prove to me you have the numbers to justify raising this. Mm. Um, they, you know, write a little bit bigger checks as well as they will invest a little bit um, at higher valuations as well. How big are the checks generally? Depends. It's like, up from 500k to probably some I've seen is like three, four million as a lead. Uh, for seed fund? Yeah, oh, wow. for seed fund. Okay, yeah. Depends. It's like four is on the high end. Average is like I see a one to two. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, they do higher valuation. Not sure really. I should be around 10 to 20 now, to be honest. I need to check mm -hmm. on what the valuation is looking like now. But, um, and then as you get forward, you have your Series A. And Series A is kind of the make or break for startups because at the end of the day, it's like Series A is all metrics. Do you have the right metrics to raise a Series A? Depends. It's different for every company, for every sector, but that's kind of the time where startups are like, oh, shit, we don't have enough fit. We don't have enough metrics. We are probably going to fail. Or, oh, we hit all this and they get their huge Series A round to kind of accelerate them to what they're doing. Those are a lot bigger rounds. Like I've seen like five to 20 million Series A rounds and raise at valuations of like 20 to 100 billion uh, valuations. After that, you get into growth stage venture, yeah, which is like your growth Series equity. B beyond. And that's just, you know, later stage, all numbers, you know, growth prepared for, you know, global expansion prepared for eventual buyout or IPO. Mm, okay. And would you say VC firms generally specialize in one of these specific stages of startups or they, they, they just like, they go across all, all three or four of them, all four stages? Usually, usually specialize. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you're an accelerator, you're probably just accelerating. If you're a studio, <laughs> you're probably just a studio. Yeah. And for most funds out there, you are kind of stuck in your place. Like the biggest thing I've seen is like funds being like a pre-seed seed fund or funds being like a seed fund A fund because those are pretty similar. But it's, I don't think I've seen this, but it's rare to have funds be like pre-seed and then like series B 
or anything like that. Right. Um, only the big funds. It's like, of course, if you're A16Z, if you're a Sequoia, if you're you like everywhere, a, you, know, you know, you throw money everywhere. They go everywhere. They have resources, funding, employees to be able to go anywhere they want. But for most VC funds out there, you don't have that luxury. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want to talk a little more about uh, accelerators and incubators. When should a startup go to a accelerator and when should they not go to accelerator? Yeah. I think why you go into accelerator, it's like this. If you're a startup looking to go to accelerator, if you want to meet connections, if you're like in a known to Silicon Valley, you don't know any VCs, and you've talked to a few, I guess, cold emailed a few VCs out there. They're like, hey, you're a little bit too early for us. That's when accelerators make sense because accelerators are, you go through eight weeks, you create, you know, you find product market fit, you know, you find some semblance of product market fit, and then you go into demo day with VCs to see, oh, if they like them. Uh, that's kind of why you should go to an accelerator. Get connections, accelerate your next funding round, and kind of just build your product, you know, iterate, build on your product. When you shouldn't go into accelerator is kind of like this. It's like, oh, you have VCs already lining up with term sheets. They're like, hey, we want to invest, you know, in you. XYZ fund wants to lead your check. At that point, you don't really need accelerators anymore. It's like, you know, if you want, you could go to it. But it's like, you don't really need them because VCs want to lead your company where you don't need an accelerator to do that, you know. Mm. What happens at Accelerator? Like you say it's eight weeks. Like what can you build in eight weeks? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So it depends. For YC, most companies will go into the accelerator already, you know, already have some semblance of things that are being built. Or they end up scrapping, kind of building something else. And also at the end of eight weeks is demo day. For some founders who aren't ready, you can actually postpone demo day to the next demo day. So it's like you have more time to build, iterate on the product. But typically, what happens at Accelerators is a few things. You partner, YC has a lot of different partners. As a startup who gets accepted into YC, you're given like, you know, I think one or two of the YC partners. Those are your go-to contacts in terms of, oh, they help give you advice. They're kind of like your investors, you know, on your, you know, pseudo board per se. Right. And then there are um, workshops and things to do, like, you know, pitch workshops, workshops with like, you know, your Gary Tans of the world, workshops with, you know, these established people who are there to give advice to network mm. and everything else. You also get, you know, you what you also get at VC is, you know, an incredible community. There's 200 other founders with you in this journey, and there's possible ways to pair up on collaboration, selling things together, you know, if you're in similar industries, and really just collaborate on, oh, how do I hire the best people? Or, you know, there's Bookface is really important. You know, VYC has this app called Bookface that's only available to companies that go through YC, like the founders. Mm. You have an account, you can ask questions, you can chat with other people who are all YC based. So it's like this YC, you know, alumni network, club, internal clubhouse network of sorts. And it's all network based. And you, you go to YC for that network. 
So it's like B school. It's like MBA. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, exa- it's exactly like an MBA. It's an MBA for startups. You can you 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 can break into product management, investment bank consulting yourself if you want to. You want to go through that, or you can go to Accelerator. <laughs> have, exactly. Oh, that's exactly. Yeah. That's that's actually a good way to think about it. I never I never thought of it that way. Interesting. Interesting. Um. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's go back to uh. Let's talk more about you for a second here. So you have made a lot in angel investments in the past couple of years. Can you walk me through the process of number one, how you made those investments? And like, I know you invest in copy. I know you invested in beacons, link, playground, just to name a few. Like what's your thought process behind these investments and how can someone start angel investing today? Yeah, it's a, that's a really great question. Um, I guess one is talk to as many companies first before you start angel investing. There's ways to be invested into the startup world without actually having to invest in companies directly. And how I say this is this. Most angel investors are going to fail because of two reasons. One is portfolio management. You don't invest in enough startups. If they only invest in two or three companies, that's a huge chance of failure. You look at venture funds, 20 companies, two work out. You have to have the mindset of, I got to invest in 20 companies over the next two years to have a great angel portfolio because at the end of the day, if you're investing two deals, three deals, you're going to fail. Two is, how do you figure out what's a great company to talk to and what's like a decent company? And with that, it is, you just have to talk to as many companies as you can. My rule is, Talk to five, talk to 50 companies. Don't invest in any single one of them. Mm. And just kind of get a barometer of what do you think are great companies? What do you think are companies that are like, okay, this is a pass and what makes them a pass or versus what's good and what makes them good? Kind of figure out your mindset. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's like when I joined VC, coming in, I was like, shit, all these companies are going to be future unicorns. You know, it, Why would it day, right? <laughs> um, and then now it's like, okay, I've, with 20, 30 calls, maybe one or two of them stand out to me. Hmm. So it's a very different mindset as you talk to more companies. That's, I think, the biggest thing. Um, two is this. If you're early, you know, A, you have to be accredited to invest in startups to invest in VC funds. So there's like a few good ways to get accredited would definitely take a look. Like if you Google how to be accredited investors, if you qualify for any one of those, you're good. Uh, But two is, there's two other ways to invest in startups. One, and all of them, there's actually, no, sorry, three more ways to invest in startups. Two of them, you have to be accredited. One of them, you don't. Mm -hmm. One is you go invest in crowdfunding. Like your we funders of the world, your republics of the world, they have companies out there, some are YC backed, that anyone could invest as little as a hundred to five hundred dollars. As for returns, I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything return wise come out of it, so I will say do your own due diligence on that. Mm-hmm. But hey, if you're not accredited investors, check that out or just read the deals that come through there. Create an account, just read the deals and kind of see, huh. Is this a good company? Kind of do your own due diligence without actually investing. Um, And then the other two methods are invest in syndicates. So syndicates are one-off investments. So you're investing in direct companies themselves, and it's run by a syndicate manager, someone who is usually, you know, in venture or has experience doing this. At this time, it's like you trust the syndicate manager 
to send you really great deals. You are able to look at their analyses on the deal you do. And if you're like, hey, I like this deal, you can invest. They syndicate managers usually have like some allocation. It's like, oh, minimum investment, 2.5K or like 5K. And you're able to invest. If you look at it and you're like, huh, I don't like this deal, you can choose not to invest as well. It's one off. So it's like you could like deal A, invest. He sends deal B. You don't like it. You can leave. Um, the last way is invest in venture funds directly. That's more of a bet on the fund manager because you get a thesis from them, but you don't, you can't, you don't have a say in what companies they invest in. You're just like, Hey, I trust you to be able to put my money into good use and invest in great startups. That's venture investing. So there's like four different ways to invest Mm -hmm. in the startup ecosystem. But yeah, it's like, depends on what your risk profile is. Do you want to be a more active investor? Do you want to be more passive investor? There's different options to suit you. Mm, I see. I see. So for you personally, you said like when you started out, you were like, I mean, I, I think something that is very characteristic to entrepreneurs and founders are a lot of them are great salesmen, right? They tell you their vision, they tell you their dream, and you're like, yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense. But I think like you know, you've been in the industry for a couple of years at this point. And he said, like, you talk to 30 companies, maybe only invest in like one or two of them. So what are some red flags that you look for? And how do you cut through the BS? <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah. <laughs> like, what what biggest, questions do you think... ask to be like, all right, cut the BS. Like, to, like what, what's going on here, right? I think the easiest red flag question to ask and see is, like, what's your competition like? Believe it or not, there's founders who say we're the only ones doing this and there's no competition. And trust me, there's always competition. If you say you don't have competition, that means you're probably not doing enough due diligence to actually... You don't even know your industry. (laughs) Exactly. That's big. Um, Another one, not a lot of founders do this, is before they even pitch or send a deck, they're going to be like, sign an NDA. That's like a big red flag in the venture industry. No one signs NDAs in venture. Why? Especially early stage venture. For a few reasons. A, the whole NDA shit is, like, very non-enforceable. It's, like, really hard to enforce in the first place. But B, I think most importantly is this. If I'm talking to a company and they tell me to sign an NDA, the reason I won't sign is this. I'm talking to so many companies that I don't have the time to diligence if they're a company that's in the same space as this company I'm talking to here. There's so much conflict of interest. Or what happens... When one of my portfolio companies decides to pivot into a place where this company who makes me sign an NDA mm. is building it, then you're basically screwed. You talk to so many companies, you can't sign an NDA. Uh, that's a bit. I, I've only had that happen to me once. I talked to the founder, was like, "Hey, you shouldn't sign send this because of this," and they're like, "Oh, makes sense. I don't know." But it rarely, it rarely happens. That really happens. And <clears throat> I guess a question I love to ask is why are you building this? Are you building this because this is something that has been bothering you for a while? Is it something that, you know, it's a huge problem and you've been wanting to solve this? Or is it something that it's like, oh, I saw AI and I want to get in on the hype. Right. It's kind of easy to tell what their intentions are when solving this. And then at the same time, it's like, I want to understand their logic. Like, what is their five-year plan or what is their 10-year plan? It's like, where do they see this company growing? Because while most of the time these five-year plans are, 
you look at it, it's going to be, and five years later, it's like, whoa, this is completely different than what we wrote. It's at least would be nice to get some semblance of just understanding a founder and kind of where their vision lies. I mean, it's going to be a hockey stick, right? They're going to be a billion dollars in five years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, man, that's so interesting. So you will say like most of VC, at least like the early stages is like, I, I heard about this. And like, I just want to hear from you say it. It's just like, it's mostly you look at the founders being like, do you actually want to build this? Right? It's like, yeah, the market is great. That's great. But if you don't want to do it, I still like, we're not going to invest. Like, this still isn't a good <laughs> idea if you don't want to do it. Yeah. It's kind of like that where it's like, you know, I don't directly ask them, like, hey, why? Like, do you want to do even want to build this product? <laughs> do you even care? Yeah. It's more of a, it's more of a just I didn't digging deep into like, what's your motivations for building this? What drew you to this space? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little more about kind of like personal questions, I guess. So you work in VC right now. How much, how much do venture capitalists makes? Let's talk, let's say that first on average, how much, how much <laughs> do people in VC make on at yeah, all, at all, at all like stages or, uh, levels? It's a great question. Um, if you so actually a really good question right now. If you go to John Gannon blog, they are one of the best sites to learn about venture. They have a lot of resources, they have a job board and everything else. But two weeks ago they published the 20, 2022 venture capital salary survey. Interviewed five hundred and fifteen people working across all these different VCs, funds, you know, corporate venture funds, regular venture funds, and everything else. And this is what they found out. Base salary for an analyst now today is 92K. Associates is 137K. Senior associates base salary is 154K. Um, principals, VPs is 195K. And partners is base salary average is 296K. And of course, this is without carry. Yeah. So, talk, 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 talk to me more about like the total compensation for everyone. Yeah. Total compensation is okay. If you're an analyst uh, or associate, you're probably not getting carry. So, you're probably just getting, you know, like this base that I told you, like 96K, probably plus like 5 to 10K in bonus if they're feeling generous. And, and that's like for uh, people coming out investment banking usually or. Uh, it's more analysts. So it's like your first year adventure. So it depends. Some people, if they go through investment banking, they're associates. So they will get paid a little bit more like, you know, what's associate salary right now? Let's check. Uh, 137K or like 154. Mm -hmm. uh, 154K average yeah. base. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's like um, a 20, 30K, maybe like a 50K bonus at that point as well. Exactly. Mm. But how you make the most money adventure is carry. And what that is, what carry is, is this. At, of any venture fund, how VC funds make money is two ways. Management fees and carry. The standard average is something called 2 and 20. 2% 2 annual management fees per year on AUM, how much your fund is worth. And 20% carry for the fund. 2% mm -hmm. management fee will pay for everything like salaries, operations, legal, everything else. Carry is kind of the bonus you have. And what that 20% carry means is whatever a venture fund returns, like, oh, say you raise 
of one million dollar venture fund, and you return ten million. You get twenty percent of all the profits. So you get twenty as a venture fund, you make twenty uh, percent of whatever nine million is, and that is how VC partners get big, big mm-hmm. because they have a few great exits. You know, they make you know. Does it a few have to be their dollars. exits, or can it just be the venture funds exit? Venture funds exit. Oh, so they can join year one and be like. Oh crap! This company just went public, and then they just they just like kind of rake that in immediately. Depends. It's funds. It's like it's you sometimes usually deals that you've worked on. Or sorry, deals that happened while you were there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like deals that got invested into when you were there. Exactly. Oh, so, th- so you you kind of gotta be there for like seven, five to seven years before you're even collecting any carry, basically. <laughs> ish. ish. Yeah. Ish. 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 Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh. But yeah, so it's like, you know, those that's kind of like the average salaries. Um, but it's like this, if you want to go to VC, if you want to break into VC to make money, good luck, because that's not going to happen for the first five-ish years of your life. It's like you have to be promoted a partner. And for a lot of funds, they don't promote upwards. It's how do you be a partner is you have to leave venture after your time as an analyst go be an operator, go be a super connector, go be a founder, mm-hmm. and then eventually go back as a principal or as a partner. Yeah, because it sounds like going into VC straight for an IB or something else, you're actually not making much more. If, if anything, sometimes you take a pay cut. Yeah, you're not you're not making much more. It's, it's like the, if you're doing early stage VC, you're not making much more. If you do later stage VC, at least you have skills to translate. Yeah, like modeling and it's whatever. Like, oh, yeah, it's like I have to translate you all the skills again. You have to learn, and most importantly, you don't have a founder network for most of these iBankers, which hurts in the long run. Because I can train anyone how to write investment memos. I can train anyone how to create you know these really simple uh, financial models, but I can't train someone in what type of network they have. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's almost like they need to have an innate interest within the startup industry or else like exactly. they probably wouldn't even have bother to try to like build their network. Exactly. All right. You heard it here first, guys. Don't go into VC. <laughs> Just go into private equity. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. Um, if it wasn't for VC, what do you think you, you'll be doing today? Dude, that's a great question. Because I think like uh... you kind of like I don't know, you can, you can, I don't know you want to be honest here, but it sounds like you kind of fell into it, but I'm assuming, for the sounds of it, you really like VC, you know, like, so that, yeah. that, that's great, but like, I guess like, yeah, if it wasn't for VC today, what do you think you would have done instead? It's a great question. I kind of thought about this in college because VC, you know, while I was in college, I did do VC interviews. Oh, sorry, VC internships. Oh, okay. But yeah. I also did yeah. a lot of other things as well, including doing film internships, like working at Lionsgate, NBC Universal. Liked it at that time, realized it wasn't a good fit for me. Data science was really interesting. I definitely would want to pursue that, but I can't code anymore. So I would be 100%. (laughs) My dream job growing up as a kid and why I was a statistics major was, have you read the the book or the movie Moneyball? Oh, God. No, I haven't. So it's a great book about the Oakland A's um, and how they use sabermetrics mm-hmm. to get players at low cost. I was a huge baseball fan when I was a kid, so oh. I read that book every day. And it was like, well, shit, I want to work at like a front office, 
you know, work baseball out of front office or basketball and do like player analytics. That would be super fun, a little bit unfeasible, but it'd be super fun to do. Um, but I did tell myself this. Um, when I'm, you know, decently successful in venture, I want to go back to school and get a degree in actually film. Get like a film degree somewhere, maybe NYU, UCLA, USC, and just pursue film because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if I'm successful in venture, hopefully I have enough money to survive <laughs> and just do some other fun pursuits like, you know, do film because it's all to, it's still pretty fun and kind of see where I go with that or be like an, be an agent of sorts, like a sports agent or like a, mm. a creator agent because it's like, oh, you're interacting with people. And I honestly just love talking to people. Yeah. 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 You got to tell Chris from copy to work harder then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you think like, so it sounds like your interest mostly lies within like the art entertainment industry then. Like that's kind of, kind of yeah. where you it's want to It's definitely arts, entertainment. And it's like, at the end of the day, my whole dream is I still want to run my own venture fund. Yeah. But it's like, okay, after that, if I'm successful, it's like, I don't want to do that until I'm 60. You know, it's like, I want to hopefully retire early and do other stuff along the way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. I, I always end my podcast with this question I ask everyone. Because um, my audience is mostly college students and people who are just graduating from college. But kind of like what advice would you have given to your 18-year-old self? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for people who are in college right now or going into college, my advice is this. Go join as many club as clubs as you can. Go meet as many people as you can in college. And go do as many th- things possible as you can. Because college is the best time to explore. I, I literally... From, like, my junior year to senior year, I had, like, a new internship every quarter, like, every 10 weeks, because I was, like, I want to explore all these different industries. I kind of want to see what I like, what I don't like about them, because, okay, once you get into a job, it's, like, well, you know, I have to support myself. If I leave and do something else, do I have a salary net to be able to support myself? And all these other questions, like, oh, what if I have a family to support now? It's, like, college is the best time to figure out what you like to do without being trapped into a singular thing. Yeah. And meet, join close be as a many people. You go to college you and you're paying 30K to 60K in tuition, not because of the college classes, because of the people you meet. You go to college to meet great connections that will hopefully last a lifetime. And I think that's what it's all about. You want to meet great people all around the space. I totally agree with that. I always tell people, um, if they're younger today, dude, just go try out shit. Go try out shit. You're, 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 you're not going to be doing what you're doing today five years from now anyway, so you might as well just accept that fate and try a bunch of things. <laughs> exactly. I think, dude, how I convinced my friends to go out every single time in college was this. I would be like, <laughs> no, wait, right. no, what are you going to be doing? Are you, five years from now, are you going to, when you look back to this moment, are you going to remember the time you studied or remember the time you went out? Is that what you said? That's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said. Word for word. Word for word. That's exactly what I said. Sorry, I just totally stole the show away from you. But I'm like, I, 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 I think I knew what you're about to say because I always said exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said. I love it. And it works. Yeah, it always works. <laughs> Well, man, um, any any last parting words, I guess, to the, to the audience? 
Well, dude, it was really great having me on here. Um, for people in the audience, if you want to reach out to me, shoot me a message. I try to respond and read as many messages as I can. You can find me on LinkedIn, Jonathan C. at Brex, or Twitter at VChangJ, or on uh, TikTok at Venture Capital Guy. Yep. And his profile will be tagged on all the clips or whatever. I can tag him on the podcast as well. Anyways, man, Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk very soon then. Perfect. It was great chatting and we'll talk soon. All right. Bye.